The Future Sport Podcast is brought to you by 3Advance, developers of sports tech apps that are AI-powered and UX-focused. So if you're looking to create some apps for your startup or your sports biz calls for some artificial or business intelligence, you should check out 3Advance. They're incredible. Go to 3Advance.com. That's the number 3Advance.com. Empire. Tech can close the gap for every athlete. I think there is a there's a stigmatism that people with ID and their disabilities, their disabilities are suppressing what they're actually doing. There's this suppressing the perception of what their athletic abilities really include. So we want to make sure that we're telling a story using data. That's Brittany Pear, coordinator with the Special Olympics World Games Competition Department. She's going to change the way you view Special Olympic athletes for good. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. Why can't tech even the playing field, or in this case of Brittany Pear's work, alter perception? You will really appreciate what she's doing when she joins us in studio in a bit. Plus, we will talk about the ever-changing landscape of finding the marketing sweet spot for athletes turned influencers with Dex Debery of Falcon Creative. But first, the future is now. So the baseball world is preoccupied with all the things that happened in Houston. In other towns, they're trying to get set for 2020 while getting past whatever the Astros did or did not do en route to their championship in 2017 and their appearance in the World Series in 2019. The Baltimore Orioles are a long, long, long way away from that right now. They're just trying to build a team that can be competitive. And Nathan Ruiz joins us now from the Baltimore Sun. And they're going about it in a tech-forward manner, right, Nathan? Yeah, absolutely, and this is something that a lot of other teams have done historically is use technology and high-speed cameras and different things to measure all the different aspects of their players, whether it's pitch grips or batting stances or swings, and, and the Orioles are trying to get involved in all those areas as well. How are they doing that? What have you seen them use? Starting last year when a new front office regime that came from the Houston Astros uh, joined the organization, they started using these edratronic slow-motion cameras, which would um, you know, after each pitch, you could go back and watch slow motion video of your motion, how you held the pitch, what your arm angle was, all these different things. And what it led to was a lot of success on the pitching side throughout their minor league system. Four of their six top affiliates led their respective leagues in ERA. Um, and now they're trying to bring it over to the hitting side. So that's um, different bat knobs to measure swings. Um, there's these things called force plates, which are, are used a lot in golf to measure just kind of how your weight distributes throughout your stance, throughout your swing. So they're trying to do all these different things to, to really measure a baseball player. Obviously, we hear about sabermetrics and analytics and all these different statistical ways to measure a player. But they're trying to do these physical things to really understand what their player's best skill sets are, what pitch works best, how they can hold it better, what different spin they can put on a pitch, what different angle they can swing at. Just all these different little tiny measurable things that could add up to um, eventually a winning baseball team in Baltimore. Um, is, was this all new to the Orioles? Was, was all of this new, or, or was this kind of things that they were doing in previous regimes? I think for the most part, it's definitely new. This is all equipment they had to get. This is all something they had 
to either train coaches in or hire coaches who are already trained in these aspects. Um, every single one of their, their minor league affiliates this year is going to have a new hitting coach, whether it's someone who's already in the organization or not. It's someone who's new to that level. And all of these guys, for the most part, have a, have a basic understanding of this technology, what the data it's pumping out means, because that's the biggest thing um, in, in any baseball team, in any system right now, is not only being able to collect this data, but being able to have coaches who can translate it to the players. So it sounds like that was something that the Orioles were really kind of behind on. Um, and you see that once they add this in and once they kind of are catching up to these other teams, they're really taking off just when you look at the pitching success they had in the system last year. Um, their low-A team, the Delmarva Shorebirds, won 90 games, first team in over a decade to win 90 games in that league. Um, and with a, just a dominant pitching staff that included Grayson Rodriguez, their 2018 first-round pick. So he was obviously already a talented guy, but then you add in um, him, his ability to be able to look back at each pitch he threw, each grip on each of those pitches and he learned how to throw a changeup last year he had never thrown a changeup before but using those slow motion cameras he's able to see oh this is how i hold it and when i have the most success i hold it like this i release it like this and all those little things again add up to finding success when you're able to to have them translated properly it sounds like you need a physics minor to be able to do some of this stuff but translating it to these players um, is really the key. It sounds like that's something the Orioles were, were pretty far behind in, but they're starting to catch up now. All right, so there's a trust the process that's going on. And, and you mentioned that this new group that is running um, the team did come through the Astros, and we're assuming that all of the good parts of what built the Astros into the dominant force they've been will be the parts that come to Baltimore. But I, I can't let you go without asking you, have any of them, since they were connected to that group, uh, over the last few years, have any of them addressed what happened with the sign stealing scandal? Yeah, so so Michael Elias, the Orioles general manager, he was uh, the assistant general manager of Jeff under Jeff Lunau, and what he has been adamant about throughout this process is that his focus was in amateur scouting, the draft, and international scouting. So he didn't really have much involvement with the major league team. Again, we hear about these these emails going through the front office about code breaker and and all these other things. And so you don't know what he was CC'd on or whatever it may be, but he's been adamant. Sigma Dell, the Orioles assistant general manager of analytics, he was in Houston as well. Um, they both talked about it during the re- Orioles' recent Birdland Caravan, which is kind of an event that just took them throughout the state of Maryland. And both of them used the word disturbing. They both described this as disturbing, how they were thankful that the commissioner is kind of bringing this to light and trying to end this. And obviously there's there's discussions happening right now between the Major League Baseball Players Association and Major League Baseball about how uh, they can move forward to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again. And um, the Orioles seem confident that um, they won't be touched by this at all, that Michael Elias has been repeatedly has repeatedly said that he or anyone else he brought over from Houston won't be affected in this. Um, they weren't mentioned in the commissioner's report on it. Uh, but, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, and obviously that kind of hangs over uh, what happened here because such a big part of, of the excitement over this rebuild was that, oh, the guys who ran Houston, they brought it here, and that had success. But now, obviously, it's uh, turning in a different direction. Nathan Ruiz from the Baltimore Sun. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bram. Up next, Brittany Pear, who is helping Special Olympians know how special their performance really is. This is the Future Sport Podcast.
Our guest this week is Brittany Pear, who is a coordinator with the Special Olympics International World Games in the Competition Department, and this is a special day for us here at Future Sport. We don't get people in studio that often. We're talking to people around the globe, so it is great to have you here, Brittany. No, well, thank you so much for having me to be here. I'm so happy I've had this opportunity to talk about this project with you and just being able to spread the mission of what Special Olympics is all about. So, What is the future for the Special Olympics? Can you kind of broadly talk about what the mission is and where things are going? Yeah, so Special Olympics is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that provides uh, sport training and competition to children and adults with intellectual disabilities. So we're all about providing opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities to go out, participate, and compete in all Olympic-style competitions and sports. So we offer 32 uh, Olympic-style sports for people to participate in and compete. And we are around, what is it, 175 countries worldwide. So um, we're really just out there trying to make sure that we are pressing on Eunice Kennedy Shriver's movement of providing opportunities for people with IED. So, you know, we're sitting here chronicling all of these different training methods and technologies that are being used, and I don't think people often see the integration for Special Olympians. Can you kind of talk about what is happening in your space now that is modern in the way that the athletes are training? Right. Um, so, I mean, I think there's been a really uh, long gap that people with intellectual disabilities have been kind of foreclosed out. They didn't, people have seen them as like, individuals that are unable to compete in sports. I mean, there's been this kind of perception that people with ID are unable um, to do basic things, um, whether it's owning their own home, going out to get jobs, or just competing in sports. So we're trying to make sure that we are changing um, how people perceive people with intellectual disabilities. And I think that is one of the things that we see with this project is we're trying to shift how people perceive uh, people with ID um, to say that they are athletes, they're out there competing every single day. So you guys have this pilot program that is gathering all these real-time statistics for these athletes. Um, what is it? Tell me about it. Yeah, so in partnership with the International Football Federation, so IFF, Special Olympics is providing real lifetime competition statistics, whether it's athlete or team statistics. Um, so this is a really big pivotal moment for the Special Olympics movement. Um, we're providing quantifiable metrics um, to evaluate individual athlete performance um, and just giving them a baseline of what their athletic abilities really include. Um, additionally, we're gathering this real-time statistics and information to ensure quality control within our competition. Um, so we are trying to maintain a competitive balance among our athletes um, within our sports, so whether that is within our uh, concept of meaningful involvement, so when athletes are competing against uh, and working with athletes that do not have an intellectual disability, and also through our divisioning process, so how we division out our athletes when it comes to competition. So on top of gathering all this information and using it to improve athlete performance um, and ensuring quality control, we're also trying to make sure that they were delivering real-time information to our media partners. Hmm. So given the fact that this is going to be a huge cultural change for Special Olympics, we want to make sure that that information is getting put out there and that our society is seeing what our athletes are actually doing and seeing what their athletic abilities can really include. So for the media partner, are you hoping that this additional statistical information is going to enhance the broadcast to enhance the performance in itself and, and get to the point where you're showing equality? Right, yeah. yeah. And I think that's like one of the things that we've really tried to focus on. So if I wanted to look back and see who ran the fastest 100 meters in the past five years, 
at Special Olympics, we're not able to do that. Um, so one of the things that we want to make sure is that we're gathering all this information and outputting it out to our media partners because I think there is a there's a stigmatism that people with ID and their disabilities, their disabilities are suppressing what they're actually doing. There's this suppressing the perception of what their athletic abilities really include. So we want to make sure that we're telling a story using data. Um, I like to say this, and I, I've continually said this uh, as I've explained this project, that numbers are the universal language. Our society evaluates success based on those numbers, and so I think if we are able to tell a story through numbers and data that we've collected at our competitions, we will be able to tell a greater, more in-depth story of what our athletes are doing. How are you going about collecting it? Is it wearable technology? What are you all doing with the athletes? So in partnership with the IFF, uh, the International Floorball Federation, we actually use their already established software to gather this information. Um, so we use their uh, software at our 2020 Invitational Games in Sweden uh, this, just this past February um, to, to collect real-time statistics, so including goals, saves, shot percentage, um, penalties, etc. So we already use an established software and to gather that information. Um, this isn't new technology, I mean, but this is just new for Special Olympics. We haven't done this before, um, gathering this information and storing it and sending it out to our partners. Very new. Why did it change? Because, I mean, statistical information of sporting events has been there since the beginning of time. Clearly it's changed, you know, over time with how things are collected, but, but why do you think it became important now for the Special Olympics? Well, I think, uh, I'll go back to say, I think our society really um, evaluates success based on numbers. Like, if we see... I guess any professional athlete out there, whether it's in the MLB, MA, um, MLB, NFL, NBA, they're all seeing their actual statistics after every game, after every season. We want to do the same thing for our athletes. I mean, these athletes are out there every day competing and training in all their sports, like any other professional athlete. This is something that they're that. I guess, pertains to their livelihood. Special Olympics is uh, a center to a lot of these athletes. So we want to make sure that we are outputting this information. And I mean, technology and just data has been a really high focus within the sports world. I mean, we've there's conversations about all the time. And when I was writing my thesis about this project, I had just gotten my master's at Georgetown, um, and I did my thesis on this project. There's no information out there that supports that data and data analytics has any benefit to athletes with intellectual disabilities because huh. it's actually it's not been studied. We just have never like done a study about how data analytics could be beneficial. How would they perform better if they were given the information yeah. that most other athletes are afforded because there's a lot of reasons yeah. to give that information, whether it's through the media right. or for own performance. I mean, even amateurs go to Orange Theory and watch <laughs> their stats pop up on the screen and they, you know, I guess in theory will perform better based on the information that they get back. Right. right? I mean, professional athletes use data all the time to depend on like what their nutrition style is going to be, what is their training style going to be, and what they're actually doing on the field. I mean, these athletes at Special Olympics, they are uh, professional athletes, if you like to say. They are professional athletes. They're doing what they love, and they're doing what they do best. So why can't we use data to do the same thing that society is already doing for these professional athletes? Is it too new to know what kind of effect it's had yet? Do, do we know that? Have, they, have you seen any tangible, like, here's some information you did not have about your own performance, and here's what's happened since you know this now. I mean, long-term effects, I don't think we've seen what can all really can encompass. But when I was talking to the athletes when I was in Sweden just the other week, and I was telling them, don't worry, like all this information, I know exactly what you did during that match, and you're going to be able to see that. Like the like 
faces on them just brighten up. The fact that someone was actually paying attention and seeing like, oh, this is what I'm actually doing and having us tell stories about these athletes are great. And I mean, I have a couple statistics right here. Um, we had three divisions during competition and I was able to identify the top scores and the top goalkeepers of these athletes. And we were able to actually sit down with them and discuss with them, like, this is what you did. Like, you should be so proud of like the accomplishments that you've made over the weekend. Um, so we had like Eric Holmes. So we actually identified with, uh, spoke with him when we were in Sweden. So he was on, he was number 10 for the uh, Special Olympics Sweden one team. We had nine Sweden teams competing. Um, in our tournament, um, but he was able to had he had 37 goals over the weekend, and that's with only two days. So within five matches, he was able to um, he was able to make 36 uh, 37 goals, 13 assists, and then overall he had 50 points scored over the entire weekend. Like yeah. I certainly couldn't do that. Like and just it's amazing to see being able because we have all these quantifiable metrics being able to see like what they're doing has been just great all right i want to ask what may be a very naive and hopefully not at all offensive question um is it at all a challenge to explain the information that you have gotten about the athletes in a way that they can understand and then implement in their own training and performance moving forward yeah and i think uh there has been some challenges i mean Special Olympics provides athletic opportunities for individuals with ID from that have a range of different abilities. I mean, we have athletes that have uh, Down syndrome, autism, et cetera. Um, so you have to find different ways how you're going to explain this information. And we found it really extremely helpful to being able to speak to parents, coaches, uh, mentors of those athletes to really sit down with them and explain, this is what we're doing and it, this is why we think it's important. Having their assistance is really helpful and really beneficial when we are discussing this information with them. How did you get into this? Ooh, well, um, so I uh, so I was an athlete my entire life. Um, I played collegiately, right? Collegiately, yeah. yeah. Uh, I uh, I played volleyball at Nebraska Wesleyan uh, University for three years. I've always been a big sports fan. I think my my love and interest for data kind of started when my brother was in. Uh, he was competing in collegiate baseball, and when back in high school, I was taking stats for players and making sure, like, oh, like what is our on base percentage, and how can we improve on this or are you hitting a ball into left field more or right field and how can we fix that? Um, I always found that really interesting. And so I, I was just a random conversation with a colleague of mine. Uh, so John Paul St. Germain, he's our senior director of sport partnerships. We were casually having a conversation of how data has been so beneficial to not only his daughters that compete in uh, club soccer, but how it was important to me when I was a collegiate athlete. And we kind of just discussed and we kind of asked the question of why aren't we doing this for Special Olympic athletes? Like we know that it can be beneficial. It was beneficial to our lives. Why couldn't it be beneficial to uh, Special Olympic athletes? So. That's kind of how the, the whole project started off and how I really got into it. And now this has kind of been my mission, my baby for Special Olympics. Yeah. Like this is what I'm trying to champion for. Has it been, was it received really well? Did you have to convince anybody? Like what, what happened initially when you came to them and said, I, this is the thing I'm thinking about? Yeah, uh, at first I was actually really nervous trying to talk about this project, especially with my colleagues and people uh, in other departments at Special Olympics. Um, but the fact is, everyone loves it. I mean, I get talks, I get media requests about it. We have discussions about it all the time and how it's going to be turned into the future. I mean, I'm talking with our fitness department and how we're going to be able to capture data um, in regards to our athletes' fitness levels or even strength, uh, 
I guess, trickling down into our program levels. So I've been in discussion with programs uh, that are through the Special Olympics North America region of how can we use quantifiable metrics to evaluate our athletes' performance when trying to figure out other opportunities for them um, at the regional level. So it's really kind of like blown up and I've actually had to like tell my colleagues like we need to make some like establish some baseline uh baseline I guess uh guidelines yeah. just so that it doesn't get blown up too much too quickly yeah I mean it's funny because like I see like an implementation where the broadcast is more advanced now and yeah. or whatever broadcast there are and then I don't know I envision like what you're doing here is going to help curate programs around the country for athletes that'll be more defined maybe than they ever were right. in the past for athletic performance. Right. And especially going back into that media, uh, I guess, topic and just ideas. So we've partnered with ESPN starting back five years ago, and we have now extended our partnership into 2027. So we want to make sure that we are really uh, using our partners, especially a partner like ESPN, to kind of push this project out and show like this is what we want to do. We want to highlight and give depth to these athletes and their stories and what they're doing during competition. Um, having a partner like ESPN, uh, I think we are very lucky to, in order to, I guess, go out and use them and making sure that we are telling those stories. Um, all right. So what's next? What are you going to be the commissioner or something? Uh, what, are, what are you going to do? No, 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 no. Uh, not at all. But uh, I have been really blessed with the opportunity to work for such a great organization. I mean, um, just coming out and getting my master's degree. And when I graduated during my undergrad, um, I wasn't really sure where my place I was going to be in the sports industry. And the fact that I found Special Olympics and we're, we have such a wonderful mission and making sure that we are providing opportunities with athletes with intellectual disabilities, I, I couldn't ask for more. Uh, one thing before I let you go, because you had mentioned competitive balance. Is there an issue with competitive balance around the world in the Special Olympics? So when I say competitive balance, I actually mean it's part of our unified it's kind of the topic of our unified sports opportunities. So Special Olympics, part of our sport department, we provide opportunities for athletes with intellectual disabilities and athletes without intellectual disabilities to compete with one another on the playing field. Um, so when I say competitive balance, we want to be able to use data in order to see is an athlete um, kicking more shots on goal than an athlete without an intellectual disability? And we are making sure that when we have those unified pairs paired up and actually competing, that there's a competitive balance, mm. that that unified partner is not overshadowing the athlete. Because, I mean, this is all about the athlete with ID to have those opportunities to go out and compete. It's it, not, is it too new to know the answer to some of those questions? Yeah, I think it is too new. Um, we've done something similar in the past. So during the 2019 Unified Cup, um, Special Olympics provided, uh, we had a soccer tournament. It was deemed the Unified Cup. Um, we used uh, a similar technology to kind of evaluate that competitive balance. Um, but it's still so brand new that we haven't really seen the effects and what can all really entail. Brittany, it was a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for coming in today. No, uh, thank you. I really do appreciate it. This has been great. And I am just I am just here just making sure that people understand what we're trying to do and how great Special Olympics is. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Up next, the ever-changing landscape of marketing with Dex Debery from Falcon Creative. This is the Future Sport Podcast. So 
let's take a minute here to thank our friends at 3Advance. These guys are ranked one of the nation's top app developers, but that's not all. They've helped grow a bunch of sports tech startups like Team Builder, T-Box Tour, and In-Game Fantasy. But they're also experts in user experience, cloud APIs, and artificial intelligence. So if you're looking for a dev partner to bring your future sport tech to life, look these guys up. Go to 3advance.com. They're the team to make it happen. At Advance, you will. That's the number 3advance.com. And tell them Future Sport sent you. Our guest this week is Dex Debery, who's the founder and creative director of Falcon, and they are finding new and interesting ways to market their clients in sports and culture and social impact. Hey, Dex, how are you? Thanks for joining us. I'm great, Bram. Nice, nice to be here with you. Hey, let's talk about the, the modern, futuristic way of marketing clients that are in the sports world. How do you just give me the broad overview of how you see that landscape right now? Well, you know, big question, <laughs> big question, and I'll keep try to keep it succinct. But, you know, I, I feel like in general, we've really reached this critical mass stage in sports culture. You know, it's, it's very, very driven by basketball culture, but, you know, it's also very qu- quickly and supported by baseball and football and football, you know, global football, soccer, um, and many, many other sports across the board. And it's really come to influence all aspects of lifestyle culture, you know, from fashion to music to general mindset towards life. So much of that is really kind of dominated by culture at large, or it's become culture at large. And so, like, I would argue that now sports culture is now the predominant genre within culture, above all else, and and more influential than any other subset, including music, which is a pretty big statement, but I think that it's true nowadays. So for brands that are really truly coming from that space and they're ingrained in sports and sports culture, for them, there's never been a like sort of a larger field to play within for them to be able to tell a really diverse range of stories, powerful stories, stories of human emotion that aren't just about the game. So that that's where we're at today. And I think that that's a huge opportunity for so many brands. All right, so tell me a little bit more about why you think the sports culture has surpassed musicians or artists or entertainers. Why, why do you think that happened? You know, I, I think it's, it's been sort of a long evolution over time. You know, it's like if you, if you look, look back to like the origins of the Olympic Games and, and the origins of just competition of sport, you know, it, it, games in general were sort of designed in large part to settle conflict. You know, in some in some places taking taking place of war, and so when that happened, and and as that sort of evolved, and knowing that that's sort of the origin, you know, the power and their, of their place in society and the impact that they have on people's thought and behavior in general, it's really it starts to be kind of profound when you look at it that way, and you stop thinking of it as like a leisure activity or a hobby or something that people do simply for a piece of entertainment. It becomes such like a tool or a mechanism uh, or even a space for humans to sort of deal with a range of things, you know, at the, at the baseline, like life and death conflict, but then a whole myriad of other things, like two guys getting together to go to a sports event, as an example, you know, they're not getting together just to watch the game. They're getting together to open up, to share, 
to, to speak vulnerably about their emotions and feelings. And that dates back to way back when, when men didn't even know they were allowed to do that. Yeah. And so when you, when you think about that, well, the spectrum of that, the origin of where that comes from, and the evolution of how that has come from you know, hundreds of years of evolution through society, you see that like, it really permeates everyone's sort of thought and behavior. You know, and it doesn't matter, male, female, black, white. You know, it's agnostic of race, gender, social beliefs, religious beliefs. And that becomes pretty all-consuming. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because, I mean, listen, there's been a lot of talk about mental health as there's extremely serious subjects that are now coming up and seem to be open to be discussed. So I think there's opportunity there. And then there's others like Russell Westbrook and James Harden who just dress really well or Cam Newton. And they've been allowed to kind of enter the fashion world differently than, say, Michael Jordan's newest line of Air Jordans. Um are brands now coming to you differently than they did in the past to say, we'd like to use X, Y athlete for this marketing campaign that has little or anything to do with their sports persona. Yeah, they are, you know, they, they certainly are. And I think even, even I would argue that the, the roles are sort of reversing in a lot of ways where, you know, I, I have conversations with some brands proactively of like, Hey, I have a relationship with this athlete. They're into all these things really authentically i think that there's a partnership to be had here and the, the brand might not even be aware of it you know it might not it might not be on their radar they might not know how deep it runs for the athlete um and i you know to me it's like it always comes down to the filter of what what's truly authentic like where is their alignment you know if it's if it's a brand of you know hot sauce I mean, just as a way of example and they just want to use an athlete because they're popular but that athlete has you know doesn't even like spicy food and certainly doesn't like hot sauce like makes no sense yeah that, that that kind of like you know those associations don't really work in my mind anymore because the audience just calls bs on it but i think you know when you find those athletes that are like really into it then suddenly it becomes really authentic and that's what they're using anyways and for them to just form a partnership with something that they're truly aligned with like that's where you really start to see some impact and yeah. wins yeah, and we're seeing this all over with athletes doing things and being part of things that you go, well, you know, I didn't know that was part of their personality, but the internet and social media has allowed this to be opened up in a lot of ways. And there's a couple things that, that I know you're doing that I found really interesting. Can you, what is Skate Kitchen? Can you can you describe what that is? Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a powerful group of uh, diverse women um, based, in, based out of Brooklyn um, that really kind of came together through the vehicle of, skating um, and all of them uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty large group at this point but sort of like the core founders the women that came together originally um, really came together through just the love of skating and all kind of having a pretty similar you know diff different backgrounds but a pretty similar experience in terms of like you know there was a point at which they were introduced to skating they really liked it there was something that was just it just clicked for them on sort of a DNA level and, and yet they felt either ashamed or um, outcast or like there was barriers or boundaries around what they were allowed to do in the sport or how they were going to be accepted or, you know, if they, if they were even sort of supposed to step on a board. And all of them sort of worked through that in various ways. Some, some of them found a lot, found a lot more challenging and others you know, sort of found a way to block out the noise of it. But all of them sort of had their own experience with it. And, and then when they met, they realized, like, wow, I'm not the only girl out there that likes to skate and, and likes to shred and likes to, like, 
kick ass in the world of skating, and it doesn't it doesn't have to be you know it doesn't have to be owned only by boys. And that suddenly, like the world opened up, and they got together and, and sort of found power in numbers, and suddenly we're empowering you know large groups of, of young girls all over the world looking at it and going like, oh wow, I thought that was like a guy sport, but you know, these these cool girls that I can look up to that are that are good, that look cool, they're pretty. You know, they have all these attributes that are, that are, that are aspirational. I can be like that, uh, you know, or I can even just enjoy the, a sport that I didn't think was accessible to me. That's huge. Like, that, that's, that's huge. And so that's, that's what they're all about, and that's, that's kind of what they're doing. Dex Debery is the founder and creative director of Falcon. Thanks so much for joining us, Dex. Thanks, man. Great to be here. That will do it for us this week. Remember, the future is now. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. The Future Sport Podcast is brought to you by Three Advanced, developers of sports tech apps that are AI-powered and UX-focused. So if you're looking to create some apps for your startup or your sports biz calls for some artificial or business intelligence, you should check out Three Advanced. They're incredible. Go to threeadvanced.com. That's the number three, advanced.com.